0: When you talk to cricketers, you talk to men that have made their name on the green stuff, in the centre of the activity, where all our eyes are focused. When you speak to Henry Alonga, you do that. You also speak to somebody that sacrificed their cricket career. Somebody who, when they were standing up for something, they stood up to something that actually could have a serious effect on their life. Something that saw Henry have to leave Zimbabwe for fear of death threats and repercussions. So speaking to Henry O'Longa... Is more than speaking to just a cricketer. It's speaking to, along with Andy Flower, somebody who took their principles, wore them in a black armband, and has lived with the repercussions ever since. He's also a rather good singer. Before I get into the chat with Henry, here's a little snippet of his appearance on The Voice Australia, which when I first saw it on Twitter made me go, flipping heck, this fella can sing. This is why. Cricket Badger Fact File, Henry Olonga. The first black cricketer and youngest ever player to represent Zimbabwe at international level. As a fast bowler, he played 30 test matches and 51 day internationals. Best bowling in tests, 5 for 70. Best bowling in 1 day internationals, 6 for 19. Forever linked with Andy Flower for their death of democracy black armband protest during the 2003 World Cup. Now singing for his supper. He was recently on The Voice Australia. Henry, let's have a badger chat. Henry, I'll start with The Voice. You were on The Voice Australia, and I knew that you'd done a few gigs around England a few years ago where you spoke a little bit about your career, and then you sang a bit at the end. I saw a, on Twitter, I think it was, a video of you on, on The Voice Australia. I was blown away a little bit. Your voice was spectacular.
1: Well, that's very kind of you, mate. Yeah, England England um, is a while back now. We, we've been in Australia for about four years now, and uh, you know, there are many reasons why we came here, but mainly in part... Uh, to do with the fact that we've got two girls who were school-going age, and we wanted them to come and you know spend some time with their grandparents, etc., and also kind of enjoy the more outdoors nature of Australia. So that's what brought us here. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed you know living in England and working there. And but it was very it was very um, it was very much a niche. I was working in in the field of speaking mainly at schools, at the odd university, churches. And then, in, indeed, what do you call it, end-of-season dinners. I, uh, managed to do with cricket, but once in a while there was rugby or something like that. Uh, I think I started that in 2006. So I arrived in England after the Black Armored protest, etc., starting a new life, and I was with the Lashings World Eleven for a number of years, nine in total, in fact. Um, but then during the off-season, I needed to do something else with myself. Season was probably about three or four months, and so decided to, uh, yeah, pursue the public speaking. And then, of course, uh, my story is rather drab and boring if I must be honest. You know, there's political intrigue in there. There's, you can sprinkle in a few you know interesting things like death threats, etc. Pretty mediocre career as well. So I had to spice things up, and so I started singing. And singing, of course, is something I did at school, uh, and it was almost a career at one point. Uh, if, if I hadn't gone into test cricket, it's possible that I might have gone into music, uh, stage, acting, etc. Mainly musicals. That, that was my great love at school. And so, ultimately, I was invited onto the show. I wasn't looking for it. I'd sung in a concert here in Adelaide with the police band, the Adelaide uh, South Australian police band. Somehow, it, it got online. So, ultimately, they got in touch with me and asked me if I wanted to come on the show, and I initially hesitant then i thought to myself well what's the worst thing that could happen and then of course um, I, I also had to consider the fact that i'm not getting any younger um, i was 42 when they asked me so you know you do the maths and you think well if i say no and they never ask me again well it's not going to happen but if, if i say no and then i think i'm ready at the age of 45 46 maybe maybe the ship sailed by then so you know i thought to myself well it's probably not a bad time to dip my toes into that world and so i did
0: for, for somebody living in england I, I didn't follow the series very closely how, how far did you get how did you do Um,
1: I got through to the battles, which is when you sing against someone. So it's a sing-off. Yeah. So I did the first one, which is the blind audition where you try and turn a chair. Um, I was lucky I I turned three chairs. And I eventually went with Kelly Rowland, the American singer from Destiny's Child. Yeah. I then got through a very shaky knockout round. uh, That put me through to the battles, and that's when I got sent home. So in the battles, because I sing very differently to most people, uh, who and in my group, and, and, and we also had a rapper, they actually decided to put us together and do a mash-up of a song sung by Adele and also by Eminem. So the song Lose Yourself, yeah. along with um, Adele's Skyfall. So um, I think it's still on YouTube, so people can watch it. Um, I've
0: seen that. It was really
1: good. Yeah, so obviously it's very subjective judgment um, on the part of the coach, but coach went for for the other guys she went for Denzel so I went home and what has it led to well a few more gigs here and there I guess you know which is what you kind of hope to achieve when you go on a show like that you're not going to turn into the next sort of great thing in, in music you just it's an open door I'm getting a few more inquiries, and, and hopefully the, the trajectory is upwards. And, and I'll keep getting more gigs, and if I keep delivering and making people think that I'm worth booking, then I get more bookings. So, uh, and ultimately, this is kind of like my job now. So, still, still public speaking um, and still singing, but uh, I, I'd much rather sing a lot more than I than I speak, because you know, ultimately, my story has been flogged to death. I've, I've told that story since 2003, really, and. You know, not, not a lot has changed apart from the fact that Mugabe's dead now. You know, there's, there's almost there's there's only so many times you can tell the same thing, and and so music's more intriguing to me. Yeah, so a lot of corporate work. That's kind of where my bread and butter is at the moment. One of the greatest opportunities I've, that's come out of the voice is I'm going to be singing with the with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra in November. Oh, wow. So that's really fun. And in addition, the South Australian Police Band again and the Army Band. So. Yeah, I've got bands coming up my ears now, but, uh, uh, you know, but that's really nice. It's really nice to be out there as a singer being taken a little more seriously than I, I was before. So uh, it's it's all just, you know, I'm, I'm not here to try and prove that I'm a great singer or anything, because I'm not. But, uh, you know, but I, I I think there's a space for has-been cricketers who are trying to geek out a new way of earning a living you know so so I'm I'm enjoying it at the moment and who knows what next year or the year after holds but for now I'm just I'm happy to to be singing live and no no record label deal or anything like that but that's fine you know I'm I'm actually quite happy to be an an indie artist and just you know enjoying the artistry of making music the craft if you will
0: One last question on the voice before we do move on to cricket I imagine walking onto that stage when the chairs are all turned away from you you know you can sing you've sung before and people have said that you, you're good but there must be part of you thinking please somebody turn around you must have been quite relieved to see three turn
1: around no absolutely but kelly Rowland only turned right at the last minute you know so the thing about it is you, you there's a number of factors that go into a performance one you're trying to connect with the audience two you're trying to remember your your lyrics and your delivery you know you want to you want to make it meaningful you, you anyone can stand up and sing a song but you want to make it connect and you want to so there there are all sorts of you know there are all sorts of things you've rehearsed and Cues and all sorts of things that need to go into the performance that you need to remember. And, and so you're thinking about that. And then you're also trying to see if it, you know, if, if a chair's turned and thankfully I turned a chair early on, kind of caught it out the corner of my eye and then got another one, but then you still got to sing, you know, you still got to finish off. (laughs) So it was good when Delta Goodrum turned first. She's quite a a big um, Australian artist. And then, of course, Boy George. And then Kelly right at the end. But but yes, you only need one, by the way. You, know, you only need one person to turn. So ultimately, it was very flattering to get three. And the irony is, the one person I would have chosen as my coach is the one person who didn't turn. <laughs> so that was um, Guy Sebastian. So there's a bit of a story, of course, because I don't know if this is on YouTube, but my wife walked down the aisle to one of his songs okay. when he was, when he was uh, Australian Idol. So... There's a bit of history there, but anyways, uh, that's just a little factoid. You, you say that
0: everybody can stand up and sing. I promise you, Henry, that you wouldn't want to sing my episode of The Voice because you would not have that same comment after that. Um, let's go back <laughs> to your cricket career, and let's take you right back to when you were a child and you first picked up a bat, you first bowled a ball. How did you get into cricket? Was it always going to be cricket? Was there ever anything else that was going to take you away from cricket?
1: Uh, yeah, athletics. Uh, you know, I was really good at athletics. Uh, I was fast runner. I could run really quick. Uh, at the age of 16, I ran 10-6 and the 100, which is the same time that Carl Lewis ran when he was 16. So, look, that doesn't mean I was going to be an amazing athlete. It just meant that I had the raw materials. And up until probably 16, I was, you know, aiming to go to America, try and get a, a scholarship to be an athlete. And then my athletics coach left the school. He got headhunted by another school. Uh, and then, and he was my mentor. He was the man I looked up to. He was the man who coached me to, to do all these great things in athletics. And then he, he'd left. And so I guess my attention moved. Um, I still, I still ran good times, but I never surpassed anything I'd done up until that point. And then, uh, my cricket coach sat me down the one time and he, he basically, this is at the age of sort of 17, 18, he basically got me to consider going to professional cricket. But right at the very beginning, it was just one of the sports I played at school. Um, a guy called Bob Blair. A Kiwi ex-test cricketer um, had come to my school and he held a coaching session and uh, I guess Mm. I was hooked from there. But it was just one of the sports I played, along with soccer and rugby and tennis and everything else. It wasn't a sport that I necessarily thought I would end up pursuing as a career um, except to say that with cricket, we played cricket twice a year. So in the first term and in the third term. We have three terms in Zimbabwe. Um, at least that was the case when I went to school there. Um, and so you played in the first term in January, February, March, and then right at the end of the year, you know, sort of October, November, December. So we had, um yeah, we had a, a lot of cricket played. And then and then I started rubbing shoulders with players who played for the national side. They heard about this kid who was really quick from, from my province, and they started picking me in the local leagues. Uh, first of all, in the Winter League, and then... So you could effectively play cricket all year round. You know, you could play both summers and then in the winter as well. And so, uh, you, you know, word got around that there's this really quick kid from Matapita Land, and then I played for the province at the age of 17 uh, and 18, and then within a few months played for the country. When I say in a, within a few months, I mean, of leaving school. And so that, that that's kind of the concise version. Uh, there were a lot of people who assisted me, helped me along the way The Streaks, uh, Alistair Campbell... Donald Campbell, his brother, just a long list of people. That uh, another guy called Wayne James. They used to pick me up to to play matches on the weekends, on Sundays. You know, there was there was a good support network of people who who believed in me. But I guess they needed a fast bowler. You know, so they felt if, they were, if we were going to kind of stand a chance against some of the better teams, they needed. A bit of pace, so...
0: Everybody needs a fast bowler. Everybody. Need- was it was it always going to be fast bowling then? You say you could run 10, 6, and 100 metres. I, I guess that ideally suits you to steam in and bowl it as quick as you
1: can, does it? Yeah, that's right, James, except, you know, I was all over the place. I could bowl really quick, but it was... Phew! I sprayed it a bit. I mean, and that never changed. <laughs> that that was the case when I was a kid. That was the case when I was an international. So accuracy wasn't my thing, but I, I, had, I had genuine raw pace. So if, if, I, if I got... A good direction and I didn't really swing the ball that much either you know it wasn't uh, maybe I'd seam it a bit uh, and towards the the end of an innings when the ball was a bit older I could reverse swing it but it wasn't often I swung the ball although on occasion I did you know but I'm not saying it was impossible but but I was just a shock bowler so I'd, I'd charge in and and just bowl as quick as I, I could and hit the deck and and kind of bowl enough balls in good areas and Kind of hope that one of them would would get a result, and so I did that often enough to justify my place in in most teams. But then, you know, once you step up to test cricket, it's very diff- it's a very different game. The good batsmen just put those bad balls away consistently.
0: The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com, their ethos. We love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger Podcast. You made your test debut when you were 18, I think it is, and you played 20, sorry, 30 test matches, 50 ODIs for your country. If I could take you back and give you the chance to live any one of those days in, in a Zimbabwe shirt again, where would you where would you take me? Where would you want to go back to?
1: Well, I'd go to Cape Town, mate. Six for 19 against England. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was, that was a very, very much an anomaly in my life because I bowled straight and the ball swung as well, you know. I think I bowled one bad ball the whole spell. 8.2 overs, I think it was. Something like that. I think I bowled one bad ball. That was to NASA. I bowled a short ball, which he pulled for four. But apart from that, you know, they were just stealing singles and, you know, the odd sort of two here or three there. And, and the rest was just, you know, just really good bowling. I, I just put the ball in good areas and and it swung a bit. It was, it was kind of weird because we were playing at Newlands in Cape Town, of course, and uh, the locals used to say that when the the tide came in um, it would change the way the balls moved in the air and and that was true actually we were defending a very modest total i can't remember what it was but it, i can't imagine it was more than just over 200 by all intents and purposes we should have lost we should have lost that match but i got inspired i can't remember what exactly i think it was just an aligning of something but everything just worked my technique works the ball swung the england players kept tipping it or hitting in the air or Getting bowled <laughs> or missing it. You know, it was just, it's one of those matches where everything clicked and I always required very, you know, a lot of fine tuning. If one thing went a little awry on my action because I, because I got called early on in my career for throwing, I was always kind of hypersensitive about my technique. And so if something was a, was a little off, I never felt, I never felt balanced. I never felt at equilibrium or at par, I was always thinking, oh, I've got to tweak this. It doesn't feel right today. I I really don't think you can do that in cricket. You know, sometimes you just got to bowl, even if it doesn't feel right. you just got to bowl and and hope that the rhythm comes. Just put it in good areas. I'm not saying I never did that, but I really did need a good rhythm. You know, when I had a good rhythm, I bowled well and it was effortless. But oftentimes I was fighting myself, fighting my action or fighting, you know, something, injury, stiffness, whatever. And, And so on a day when everything clicked, like it did on that particular occasion oh yeah i'd want to relive that any day mate because that was only that was a that was a one-off it never happened again the months ahead
0: of the 2003 cricket world cup you're named in the zimbabwe squad i i take it you're, you're going into that tournament thinking this is a fantastic opportunity zimbabwe kenya south africa hosting it to make a bigger name for yourself try and get zimbabwe winning a few games and see how far you can get in the tournament
1: I wasn't a shoe in initially. I actually wasn't even part of the squad in late December. Um and in fact that whole year we we'd had I was in and out the side, we for a number of reasons. One was somewhat connected to the fact that a guy called Stephen Mangongo was now a selector and he didn't really like me and I played for his club, funnily enough. But he was really harsh on me. What had you done to upset him? Oh mate, you didn't need to do much to upset Stephen. Um, Stephen <laughs> Stephen Stephen was just a hard taskmaster and he actually coached the national team when, you know, a couple a few years ago, maybe 3 or 4 or 5 years ago. Um and and he was just he's just old school mate. He was just and and I just never jived with that. When I say old school, he was like he treated the boys like school kids, you know, in the team, Takashinga. He just treated them like and I, I of course was now a seasoned international by this stage. I was I was coming to the end of my career and I was with takashinga for a season and a bit and he was like he was our coach. And Takashinga was based in the high density suburbs and it was a bit of a trick for me to get there to make practices and he always wanted me there at practices and oh gosh. I couldn't always make practices. And sometimes I'd be away on national duties. So he was just a guy. I'll just I'll just call it a personality clash. I think that's the simplest way of putting it. And of course because I performed as well in the past, and I've taken, you know, or at least i would performed and, and had some match-winning performances, they kind of expected that every day. Every time I played, they expected me to go out and take five wickets or, or win matches for the team. And I wasn't that kind of bowler. I, was, I didn't have that consistency. So for the last year and a bit, I was in and out the side. I was also struggling with injury. Uh, there was just some personal stuff going on in my life. So come December or, or November, I can't remember, I played in a match against Kenya – I wasn't even in the squad for the World Cup. Played in a test match against Pakistan, primarily because Pakistan came and played a couple of tests. We got hammered in the first test, or hammered in the warm-up match, I can't remember. And they didn't even look at me. They thought, oh, you know, Henry's got pace. He brings something different. So they picked me for the test in Harare, I believe. I took five wickets in the one innings. We lost the test match, but I took five wickets. So they looked at me and thought, oh, eh, maybe we need to look at him again. He's bowling well now. And then Kenya were on tour, so they picked me for that. I I think it was either a one-off one-day match or a couple or something like that. And I took six for So I took six for 28. So those are my second-best figures in one-day cricket, albeit against Kenya. But, you know, they still had some good players. They had Thomas Adoyo. They had Kennedy Otieno. They had Steve Ticolo and Morris Adumbe. So, you know, they weren't a rubbish team. And bear in mind, in that same World Cup a few months later, they got through to the semis. So, you know, they weren't a walkover. That six wickets then got me into the squad. And then, of course, yes, the excitement of playing comes into play. But brewing under the surface as well was the idea of doing this protest. So it had already kind of, by the time I was announced in the squad, maybe a month before the World Cup, I was already in talks by that stage with with Andy about doing the protest.
0: I'd always assumed, Henry, that it it may be... Obviously, me being a bit a bit thick, but whenever I've read anything about your protest, it always reads that Andy Flower came up to you almost the night before the protest and said, "Do you fancy doing this with me, Henry?"
1: But this was something I'd planned much before that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, I don't know where. You, I don't know. I don't know who's been informing the other people about the timeline but there was a lot of forethought that went into it maybe a month's planning i reckon if not a month certainly three weeks
0: i've read some quotes from andy Flaw who said that he he had this idea to do this and he was thinking about who who he could do it with and he thought of you T- take me back to that conversation
1: when he first raised that with you and wh- what he said it wasn't even andy's idea to start with um there's another man called nigel huff okay and nigel nigel was a friend of andy's i believe if it wasn't nigel himself it was Another friend of Andy's but took him to his farm, not Andy's farm, this other gentleman's farm, and showed him and he said, look look, look what they're doing, mate. And and of course, I believe there may well have been some kind of um, distress there, maybe some war veterans invading or something, I can't remember. Uh, in any case, he said, Nigel Huff then challenged Andy that really it, it wouldn't be right for the team to play in the midst of all the turmoil going on with the farm invasions in Zimbabwe. He felt that it needs to be, to be challenged on, on, you know, and, and the best platform for that was the World Cup. He suggested to Andy that the whole team get to boycott the World Cup. Andrew, of course, needed to approach me to see if I could get the confidence of, of the players of color in the team. He felt he could confidently go and get the white players, but he didn't think he could get the black players. So, of course, myself being the, the senior black player, he came to me to try and see if it was something that I, I might sort of consider. And if, if, I, if I did, would I recruit the other players? But the problem was, we had a few young players. So there was Douglas Hondo, Tatanda Taibu, and Gian Ibrahim. And I just felt it wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't get them on side. And I said, good luck to Andy trying to get the rest of them, you know, the other guys on side because some of them were playing their last World Cup, etc." So, you know, a boycott would have been... And look, I, I don't want to take credit for what was said in the meetings. I have no idea who said what, but ultimately we came to the conclusion that that probably wouldn't work to get everyone on board. So we met a couple of times. He came up to me initially at, at a net session in Harare. So by this stage, we were in Harare. And, you know, I think the World Cup sort of begun in, um, in earnest in... February, if I'm not mistaken. And so we were having a net session maybe sometime in January. Forgive me for the timelines. I can't remember. That's all right. He said, uh, "There's something I want to talk to you about? I said, sure. So we went to, I think it was the Newland Shops, which is a sort of fancy shopping center in Harare. And, we, and we, he then introduced me to the idea. Now, bear in mind that uh, Andy and I had had some, some history. We, we weren't getting along for a wee while. And when I say a wee while, I mean maybe a few years. Um, just a just, just personality clash. And so, anyway, I, I, I was still willing to listen to the guy. I took it away. I thought about it for a while. And then, like I said, I, I just wasn't sure we'd get everyone on board from my side. Uh, we, we then decided to keep it just the two of us. And then I suggested we speak to David Coltart, who's a good friend of mine who was involved in politics. He was also involved as a human rights lawyer. And he introduced me to the idea that Mugabe was a dictator, etc. So once he came on board, then it started to take shape as a protest.
0: And you two are indelibly linked, aren't you now, Andy Flower and yourself, in terms of that day at the World Cup when you both wore black armbands for the death of democracy in your country. I've seen it described as being brave. I've seen it been described as all kinds kinds of different things. Did you have any idea about the scale of what you were undertaking when you put those black armbands on
1: and what the potential repercussions for you might be? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we, We knew it was a world stage. If you're going to do something like that at a World Cup, You know, you know that it's going to have some kind of impact to the billions of eyeballs watching. And and we, you know, we knew that it it would get external media attention above all else. You know, weren't too sure about local media coverage, but um, we wanted to say to the world that we disagreed with what was going on. And we're trying to draw attention to the human rights abuses, the excesses, you know, all that stuff and the repercussions. We weighed up. We even met, you know, various people who were involved in, um, security, people who'd worked at the highest levels of government in that they'd worked with the secret police or something, you know. So, so we were meeting people at, you know, at night in dodgy places like golf clubs, (laughs) you know, jumping from one car to another to, to kind of communicate and, and people telling us this is what might happen. This is how Mugabe might react. This is how the ministers might react, etc. So we were fully briefed. But so strong was our conviction that we you know, we, we felt it was the right thing to do to carry on, you know.
0: Let, let me skip you on until so, to the aftermath of that because yeah, obviously but, well, well chronicled the actual event itself and and the protest. But I I read a piece of, that you'd done I don't know when you did it actually, but about how you were perceived. You, you were quite upset or or angered or, or whatever the phrase might be about how the black people in Zimbabwe responded more than anything because you'd effectively protested on their behalf, but they they didn't take
1: it how you thought they might, did they? No, it's quite a weird thing, you know. And, of course, they've done a, you know, a lot of people have done a 360 now. Uh, obviously, when Robert Mugabe showed his true colors in later years and the economy was decimated and people were still disappearing and people still getting tortured, etc. Then people started to go, oh, OK, the penny dropped for them, you know. Um, ultimately, I was I was kind of, if anything, disappointed that the very people that I was trying to protest on behalf of, you know, didn't get it. They They just didn't. A lot of people didn't get it. They didn't understand what it was all about. They called us sellouts. They called us, you know, traitors and all sorts of weird names that just don't make any sense. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, um, who's the bad guy here? You know, how many people have I killed? Zero. You know, how many people have I destroyed their livelihoods? None. Um, what am I actually doing here? Well, I'm actually asking the powers that be to sort of stop bullying people and killing people and doing all sorts of terrible things. So how am I the bad guy? But, you know, in, in, in many Zimbabweans' eyes, that was, that was fair game. It was a fair call. They, they thought that we, myself and Andy, had um, obviously crossed a line. And instead of looking at the actual facts and the evidence of what we were trying to bring to the fore, they just thought, you know, you can't be critical of your president. I mean, it's, quite a, it's kind of a weird situation because Zimbabwe actually has laws that prevent you from slandering the president. It's kind of weird. You know, you can't even be critical of him. If you denigrate the office of the president... Um, And, of course, uh, any tyrant would love a law like that because um, they've just got to prove in in the law that you've denigrated the the office of president, and and they can can make anything stick if they want to. So there was really a culture of fear in Zimbabwe at the time in which people didn't want to be seen to be critical of the government, so they couldn't really side with us. Uh, There were some people who wore black armbands at the match itself. Some people got arrested for showing solidarity with us. So, you know, there was a price to pay if if people supported us, but of course, you know, sixteen years on now Alonga oh he's you know Alonga was he was a trailblazer, he stood up he was ahead of his time, blah blah blah. <laughs> it's a bit late now guys. I've I've gone, man. I'm living in a different country now. I got the message loud and clear back in the day, thank you very much. You know, I was getting booed by people on the side, I was you know, there were horrible articles written about us. So that was hard to stomach, but I can understand why they had more Anger towards me than Andy. I mean, I I can kind of get it. I was one of them, but of course the accusation they always throw my way is I was never Zimbabwean because uh, cause I'm half Zimbabwean, so I'm half Kenyan. Mom's Zimbabwean, Dad's Kenyan, so they always oh he wasn't Zimbabwean anyway. Yeah, you know? so yeah, it, it was it was a very weird time, and and of course you know I'm, I'm as patriotic as they come. I still kind of even see myself as Zimbabwean, even though I'm a British citizen now and and you know maybe soon to be an Australian citizen, but. I guess at my core, I still see myself as Zimbabwean and still still barrack for Zimbabwean whenever they, they do anything. But, you know, ultimately, yeah, it was just really sad. And the one way the one way I explained it was, the, the, there's, here's the, the all-powerful leader of the country, a, a dictator, a vicious tyrant, who I, the estimates say at the end of his life, he was worth a few billion, certainly a billion, maybe more. So he's raped, plundered and pillaged the country and is very wealthy. I left with nothing. I, I, I started a new life in England as a nobody. And I'm not I'm not trying to say that I'm a squeaky clean angel. I'm just saying the reason that that guy who was yelling at me had no shoes on or had torn shoes or had torn trousers is because of the very leader he eulogized and whom he loved and bowed down to. Now, as someone who went through a good education system. I was saying, no, I, I'm going to call the BS here. You know, I'm going to, no, 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 you know. Robert Mugabe is not all he's cut out to be. He's actually a vicious tyrant who slaughtered 30,000 of his own people. Like, who does that? And then claims that he's, a, you know, he's, he's a man of the people. Who does that? You don't, you can't do that. You, you know, I mean, killing two people is bad enough. You can't kill 30,000 people, just get away with it. And people still eulogize you as a hero. You, you know, it's just weird that the, the real reason for them living lives under duress was because of this leader that they still put on a pedestal and then the guy who's coming to say hey i want to represent you guys and say to this guy please stop doing that they go no no no, you shut up you know who are you you're a seller we we don't like you you're not one of us you don't represent us and then of course i got death threats so i i left i was like okay fine if you don't want me to speak on your behalf i'll i'll go sing man (laughs) uh, i'll I'll start a new life and and, then do my own thing you know
0: are you looking to get your business in front of the cricket world join forces with the fastest growing cricket podcast on the web the cricket budget podcast brought to you in association with your business take an advert on the pod or become the headline sponsor contact us cricketbadger at hotmail.com for some very reasonable prices and joining the fun as the cricket Badger podcast continues to go from strength to strength you obviously took those death threats seriously. Did? I mean, you, you've described him, Mugabe there. He's obviously not averse to taking it out on people who he thinks are against him.
1: You presumably
0: felt for your safety and, and had to get out.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the death threats were credible. They came from two sources. One was someone who worked in the CIO, which is the Central Intelligence Organization, which is the, the sort of secret police in Zimbabwe. The other was uh, uh, a minister overheard in his office saying that a longer guy thinks he's so clever, just... Wait until the World Cup's over, we'll sort them out, you know. And that in Zimbabwe normally means you disappear. I mean, they still have abductions happening even to this day. People just disappear, never seen never seen again.
0: You would have thought, though, wouldn't you, that you being high profile as a cricketer and obviously the, the protests being worldwide, you would almost be the safest people in Zimbabwe because if they touched you, it would be so obvious why they were doing it and what what had happened. But didn't seem to work like that, did
1: it? Oh no, mate. Um, Morgan Tsvangirai, very high profile, member of the opposition party, leader of the opposition party, imprisoned so many times, tried on tried for treason, beaten up, fractured skull. You know, called a Western puppet. All sorts of things. they crucified his his character. You know, they they just they had ways, mate. And I wasn't as high profile as him. You know, so yes, the spotlight would have been on for a while. Um, but if you know, if we didn't get that draw in our final game against Pakistan when it rained. Who knows whether I'd still be here, mate. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, that rain allowed us to progress in place of England or Pakistan. And that effectively saved my life. So, you know, ultimately, I have no idea what future I would have had in Zimbabwe. It may well have been the case that, yes, they might have left me alone. But I doubt it, mate. I yeah. know them too well. Their track nice. record is, is absolutely rock solid that if you get on the wrong side of them, um, they they respond normally with violence.
0: I, I send you a piece I wrote a couple of months ago where I I had about two or three weeks in Zimbabwe and I I found it a, a fascinating experience and this was only 2012 so it wasn't that long ago. I found it a fascinating right. country to go to because I, I'm quite a political person. I'm obviously aware of what you've done in cricket and and various other things. And so I and I, I was spending my time predominantly with the the black community in in Zimbabwe. So went to the few of the, the rural villages and, and things like that and were talking to people and even, yeah. even then, um, Mugabe was obviously still looming large at the time as the, as yeah. the leader of the country. And you, you said to people, um, I, I, I went to a hospital actually, and I was quite surprised about how bad the hospital was, and I was surprised right. that there were so many people in abject poverty, really poor people, very nice yeah. people. I, I thought the Zimbabwean people were one of the nicest people I'd, I'd ever, ever ever come across, but they were living in some horrible yeah. situations. But as soon as you ever, Agreed. as soon as you mentioned it, might be actually the fault of the government—they yeah. did exactly what you just said. They, they defended Darby. Yeah. H- he was um, voiced to me by m- the majority of people there as their savior, almost their hero, the person that kind of made it possible
1: for them to live. Mm, I know. Very weird. Uh, you, you know, I've said on Twitter that it's—it's it's kind of—it's it's a very bad analogy, but it's kind of analogous of Stockholm syndrome when yes. um, when when you know when an abuser. Or, or an, someone who's been abused by someone fall, kind of falls in love with them and feels they have to protect them. It's kind of weird. And I know it, it's, it's a weird kind of comparison, but, but I think there's an element of Zimbabweans being kind of invested in the past. So so we, we obviously came from uh, – we're a former colony of the British Empire, so – there's that history that speaks very powerfully to a lot of black people who many would have been old enough to understand segregation and, you know, the unfair voting system that was in place. You know, you had to either own lots of land or you had to have a minimum of qualifications to vote in elections. You know, if, if you spoke out against the government, you could be imprisoned like Mugabe was. He was initially put in prison for making um, subversive speech, for example. You know, so that could happen back in the day when Ian Smith was in charge and it was still Rhodesia. But you know, fast forward a number of years and all of a sudden they've got this cognitive dissonance because on the one hand, Mugabe's their hero, he's their liberator. And and on the and, and by the same at the same time, the white man has to remain the enemy because of the past. And so they, they get caught in this weird sort of sitting on the fence position where they, they can't call their leader to account because well he's the man who's behind the fact that we're free today. Now, of course, to credit Mugabe for the liberation war is is just, is a bit hyperbolic, you know, I mean, he he was very much a part of many forces that were trying to dismantle the old system, but if we were to give credit where it's due, sure, he played an important part in the liberation war effort, um, but a lot of people just couldn't bring themselves to be critical of the man, and I think the other thing as well, James, is, and you may you may have understood this when you went to Zimbabwe, but the chiefs, if, if you know, if you if you watch, I know it's a, it's a really crisis, I mean comparison, but but if you watch movies about you know the Wild West and and Indians, Red Indians versus you know the Americans, you always get the impression that the chief is is kind of the leader of the pack and leader of the clan, etc. And that's the case in Africa too. So so any any chief, anyone who's been bestowed the position of chief, whether he's a literal chief or M- Mugabe wasn't literally a chief. He was kind of an absent chief, if you will, but you know, he was like a chief in the sense that, you know, he ran the country. But chiefs can get away with anything, mate. They 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 rule the roost. And and it's kind of almost um their right to own everything and make all the decisions and people will still, you know, be very respectful to a leader, uh, pander to him or her because by virtue of their office rather than by virtue of the way they conduct themselves and whether they um, are good at what they do. So the chief can destroy the country. You know, he can come up with disastrous agricultural policies that literally destroy the agrarian-based industry. You know, the chief can steal people's land without paying them for it. The chief can throw people in prison without trial or or without charge. You know, the chief can do all that because he's the chief. Yeah, that's just the way it is. He's worked his way up to the top, and he's the chief. If you want to, if you want to do what he does, you've got to become the chief. And so, Robert Mugabe, along with a lot of other African leaders, have been able to abuse the people that are placed under them, the people that have entrusted them with the role of governing. And irrespective of how they've governed, people still, you know, sing songs about them. And, and I mean, the same thing happened in South Africa, mate. Jacob Zuma had something like 600 corruption cases against him when he was a sitting president. I mean, like, where else in the world can you get that happening? Where else can you get people like Mobutu, whose people are starving and he's got gold taps in his mansion? You know, it's like Africans, um, this structure where the chief is respected, come what may, no matter what they do. And it's to the detriment of a lot of people. So that's what we were up against. That's what I was up against. And I didn't, I underestimated that. I thought, you know, we, we, Zimbabwe is one of these countries that you always hear of, spoken in glowing terms about how literate our people are. There's a high literacy rate, very well educated. And so I just assumed most people would get it. But, mate, I was in for a awakening.
0: I found it a very interesting trip to Zimbabwe. I, we, we came out of the airport and we drove into Harare. And the person I was traveling with said, This is, this is the only good road in Zimbabwe because this is the road that Mugabe uses. So he, he, he leaves his palace and he goes to the airport. He comes back into yep. the airport and he goes back to his palace. So this, this road is beautiful. And as soon as we turned off that road, it's potholes galore and it's, it's, it's kind of you're into uh, a totally different world. And I, I found the race side of it quite interesting as well because i'm used to being in england when you're walking through cities and you see black people white people asian people and you walk past them and everybody's kind of doing the same thing going about their daily business but i I went into as i say some of the remoter parts of zimbabwe and as a white guy i had little kids coming up to me and touching me on the arm your skin feels the same as mine They'd never they'd never really they'd never touched a white person before and (laughs) It was fascinating. It really was. I, I, I walked yep. through one of the um, back parts of Zimbabwe on my own, uh, on my own one day. And I, I was, I walked through this street where it was all black kids there. And I, I felt yes. for the only time in my life. What it would be like to be a black guy walking into a white pub or something in England, where yeah. you know, because they were, they were all looking yeah. at me and they were all inquisitive and they were all curious. It wasn't nastiness at all. It wasn't racism or anything. They were just, "There's a white yeah. guy. What's he doing here?" Yeah, it was it was it was fascinating country, beautiful country as well. I I, I mm-hmm. love Zimbabwe. But it, how, how do you feel now? Mugabe's died. I mean, obviously nobody's dancing on anybody's graves because. Anybody dying is a sad thing, but it's an end Mm. of an era, but it doesn't necessarily end end Zimbabwe being the way it's been,
1: does it? I mean, after the coup, Mugabe just lost all vigor. You can almost just see him melt away when you see the photos, you know, when the coup happened. It's only a couple of years, mate, and you look at the photos of how he withered away after he lost power. Do you know, something that doesn't get spoken of much that I find quite intriguing is how shallow... Robert Mugabe revealed himself to be in those last moments of of holding on to power and going into obscurity. And I think it's all revealed ultimately by the things he said after he was ousted in whatever that was, a coup or not a coup, whatever it was. He spoke very strongly about how he was betrayed. Mm -hmm. Now, he was betrayed. Not the nation, not the party, but how he was betrayed. And he wanted... He actually was already putting a launch pad in place for Grace, his wife, to take over. And, of course, that's ultimately what was his undoing, is, you know, Manangagwa was getting ousted and set aside. And um, I think one of the, the army officials was overseas. And, and, and anyway, I don't need to regurgitate the the coup, the coup or whatever it was again, but it was just interesting how he, he it's almost like he thought Zimbabwe was his personal, you know, fiefdom. that it was, This was his kingdom. He was the leader. He was the chief. How dare um, I have people who would betray me? And then, at the next election, he said he wasn't going to vote for Zanupiev. He was going to vote for the opposition. Now, I'm pretty sure it was a secret vote. I wasn't there to make sure that he didn't vote for Zanupiev, but he made his feelings very well known. Can you believe... And I said this on Twitter, it's like, this is crazy. Mugabe voted against Zana PF or voted for the MDC. Um, White Farmers voted for Zana PF. And it was just bizarre. It's like a flipping of everything we had in Zimbabwean politics in the space of a few weeks. Mugabe almost turned his back on everything he did. You know, it's almost like he said, party that I support, I can't support them because, but it wasn't an ideological disagreement. It was because they booted him out of power. That's how selfish he was. It wasn't because, uh oh, I disagree with them on this. You know, their, their policies have changed all of a sudden. It was just because he wasn't top dog anymore. So he ran off to the opposition that he's been plundering, pillaging, beating up, imprisoning on a whim, just like that. You know, like everything he'd done for like uh, the, the opposition party came to power around about, when I say came to power, well, sorry, came into existence around about 97, 98. So for 20 years, 20 years, right, he was imprisoning, resisting Morgan Sangurai. He was stealing elections. He was doing all this weird stuff that just never gave the opposition a sniff. And then he gets ousted from power, and all of a sudden, he, he's like a little kid who's like, you know, he's lost the football match. He's losing the football match. He says, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. It, w- it was just bizarre. It was, it was like no one wants to talk about that. That he just flipped. When I say no one. I don't mean literally. But, but why are we making a big deal about the fact that his legacy was one of him just completely disowning everything he'd built in Zanu turning his back on them because of his personal spat with Mnangagwa, the man who betrayed him. You know, that was just weird. I mean, if I'm aligned to a political party, pff, I don't know. Imagine I was a, a Labourite in the UK. Imagine I, I loved labor all my career. And at the end, like, and I got stabbed in the back by someone. I don't know. Imagine you're Gordon Brown. <laughs> you lost a few months and then the election comes out and you kick them. You don't just all of a sudden go to the conservatives. You know, it's like, are you serious? Are you that fickle? That, that's, yeah. a, that's a bad example in this country at the moment with Brexit,
0: because they, they're swapping every every, every left, left, right and centre. People are walking across the House
1: of Commons to a different seat. But I, I prob- know exactly where you're prob- coming from, Henry. You're probably right. You're probably right. But, <laughs> but you, you get my point, though. It's like, it's like Mugabe was just – and that, to me – really summed up the character of the man. He was a very selfish man, extremely selfish. It was always about him. And, you know, so you talk about the roads, you know, the beautiful road to his mansion. He would sometimes just come and commandeer the passenger planes because we didn't have like a presidential plane. So Air Zimbabwe had... You know, like a couple of planes, and once in a while, he, if he wanted to use the plane, he'd just come in. All the passengers get kicked off, you know, and, and he just takes the plane. Um, and there's no scandal, you know, there's no. If this happened in England, I mean, for crying out loud, Harry and Megan or Megan fly private jet to Elton John's Villa, and there's an outcry in the UK. Yeah. That's a, and that's like a, a, a favor. There's an outcry. In Zimbabwe, Mugabe would just take the plane, and you can't say anything, you know, and then and they were, they were gifted all sorts of things to build his mansion in Harare. The government forked out millions of dollars. I mean, here's a guy who was surrounded by, yes, men and women, filled with ideas of megalomania. I don't know, he just thought he was bigger than... I mean, he came up with bizarre sayings like, he's, he's worse than Hitler, you know, I'll be ten times worse than Hitler. He says, oh, I'm greater than Jesus Christ because I'm supposed to have died so many times, and look, I've come back every time. This is weird how he just, he was an egomaniac. By the way, I haven't given too many interviews since he died. And and people say things like, don't speak ill of the dead. But I just find it weird. You know, even now, a lot of people, maybe 20 years time, this will be written about him. But for now, people are just letting the dust settle. But truth be told, Mugabe was all about himself. He really was.
0: Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting
1: for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream.
0: If I could take you back to 2003, Henry, knowing knowing what's happened since, and knowing death threats, and knowing how it was received, and knowing the fact that you've had to go to Britain and then to Australia since, would you do the same again? Would you would you wear that black armband and, and do that same protest, knowing what was going to come?
1: Yeah, absolutely, mate. I mean, that's just it's hardwired to my character. I think it's just the kind of thing I would do. I uh, and to not do it would be to disown myself. You know, it's just you, you just you get raised a certain way. I went to schools that taught me about fairness and taught me about justice and taught me about standing up to bullies. And, yeah you know, it was just, just the way I got raised, mate. I, and, like, look, I'm, I'm older now. I've got kids. Would I do it now? Probably not. You know, different station in life. To be fair, I'm living in a good country where that's not necessary. You don't have to do this sort of thing or do that sort of thing here. It was a very unique time, and it was a crazy time. I mean, England, remember, don't forget, England wanted to boycott Zimbabwe. Uh, they didn't come to Zimbabwe during that World Cup. There were very strong political voices, you know, condemning the state. England, the England team got hung out to dry. It was like, you know, Tony Blair saying, we advise the players not to go, but we can't tell them not to go. <laughs> it was weird. But yeah, it, 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 it was a weird time where the voices of condemnation were so strong. That doesn't happen nowadays. I don't know what's happened in the world, but that kind of common condemnation of, over Zimbabwe, that, that time is coming on because the anger and, um, I, I guess... You know the um polarizing of people over the race issue, white farmers, etc. All of that's happened now, so we probably won't get that type of emotion again. But you know, leopard can't change its spots, and my spots are that I feel really strongly about certain issues, and I've, it always moves me to action. You know, like like I feel strongly about charity work, so I'm you know I'm still doing charity work here. I started in Zimbabwe, and I, you know, I'll do it till the day I die, trying to, you know, help people, and and it's just hardwired into me. I'm not saying that as if I've got a big head or anything. I'm just saying it's, it's just that side of me has always been important in my life, and so when I see people in distress, I try to help
0: as a proud Zimbabwean you know, you grew up
1: there you've got family
0: there 30 test matches 50 ODIs as i said you've never been back since have you is there must be quite a bit of a sadness there that you know that's been taken away from you you can't go back to your country effectively would you like to go back
1: Oh, I certainly wouldn't go back to live there. But mate, listen, James, I'm absolutely, I'm a grown man. I'm 43 now. I absolutely own everything about the protest. I, You know, a lot of people still have the, still under the impression that, and you hear this all the time, a lot of people coming up and say, oh, you know, you were used, you know, Andy Flower just used you. And, and, and that accusation keeps coming back. And it's normally from black people who love Mugabe. Ultimately, my, my passion for the country is unwavering, but I've kind of moved on. You know, I, I, I going back is is something that I might entertain if I'm invited back there. But I, I but I own the fact that I'm an exile. I, I don't blame. It's not something that was taken from me. I, I could have decided not to protest. Yeah. And I probably would still be living in Zimbabwe right now, towing the party line and just getting on with life and being being who I am. I don't know where life would have led me. But so, I you know, I, I, I try to. I try to explain to people that you know I wasn't bullied into it. I wasn't cajoled into it. I was old enough. I was 26. You know, I I knew what the issues were. I knew what Mugabe was like. I knew he was a tyrant. I knew he was a dictator. I knew he was abusing his power. I, I, and I knew that that was the case for a lot of people in the regime in ZANU PF. And 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 I had a very I had a cogent picture of what I was up against. All that to say. I own every part of my circumstances now. Don't look back on myself and think, "Oh gosh, you were a naive, twenty-six-year-old." No, no, no. I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. But sadly, James, I've been burned so many times. And I mean, maybe, maybe Twitter's the wrong place to live if <laughs> if if you're someone like me, you know. But I just get the distinct impression that there are more haters out there than people who like what I did or like me you know what, mate? I'm just going to live my life where I'm at. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to keep singing. Um, I'm going to keep furthering my my support for causes I believe in. And if Zimbabweans don't get me, that's okay. You know, the, the, the rest of the world sort of seems to appreciate some of the things I've done. And that's enough for me. If Zimbabweans if eventually, after two decades, realize that you know, here was a guy who took a conscientious stance against a vicious tyrant, then so be it. You know, there's some people who recognize that now, though. I must be fair to them. It's not so one-sided that no, you know, that everyone's a hater. No, there's some nice people out there and it's a real joy to sort of communicate with them when they, when they, 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 they view Mugabe and Zimbabwe in the last 40 years with a, with a balanced perspective and then, you know, no bias. So as long as I speak to the biased people, I know what I'm going to get. You know, I know what I'm going to be called. It's happened so many times. I'm going to be called a sellout. I'm going to be called an Uncle Tom. I'm going to be called this, that. You know, they just just the usual stuff. It's so tired now. But I guess, honestly speaking, though, if, if if Zimbabwe decided that I have some something to offer them, then you never know. But I'm not going to go and live there. I think you can be
0: very proud of what you did. I think it was an incredible thing to do, and I I wish you all the best for the future. I'm very conscious that it's getting late in Adelaide, and I'm sat here in the daylight and starting to tick by where you are, Henry. I really appreciate you coming on the Cricket Badger podcast this week and wish you all the best for your singing and wish you all the best for the future.
1: Thank you for being on the show this week. James, it's my pleasure. Um, Let me know when it's out, um, and see you on Twitter.
0: It's that Badger style. Thanks very much to Henry Alonga for joining me this week. I think you'll agree, obviously we got off topic, massively off the off the topic of cricket, but I think when you talk to somebody like Henry Alonga, it goes with the territory. Massive respect to Henry, massive thanks to him for joining me on this week's show. Thank you for his time, and good luck to him in the future for all of his singing, and I'm sure his life will bring in many different opportunities because he's that sort of guy thank you very much to henry for joining me i'll be back again at the same time next week i always say that i always say the same time next week and it very rarely is the same time next week but if you subscribe to the podcast you'll find out when it's out when next week's edition is out because it will drop into your inbox and you'll see it coming in and please while you're there stick us five stars stick a comment stick something nice on there to encourage other people to listen to the cricket badger podcast but whenever the next one is out you'll find out soon follow it on twitter as well at cricket underscore badger i always tweet them on there as well until then badgers enjoy your cricket
1: Podcast Network.